We are observing the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it is great to be beginning the, the new cycle of the feast days, of the holy days. Let's turn over to Leviticus chapter 23, and uh, we get a little perspective of, of what we are doing today and what we're starting this week. Here, of course, we review and we learn that God has his feasts. He has times when he invites us to come and feast with him, to join him in feasting. And and what a tremendous invitation that we have received, that we can come today. God is here today. Jesus Christ is here today. And so we want to be here today. And so that's, that's why we've come. Leviticus chapter 23, of course, he says, First of all, speak to the children of Israel. Say to them, The feasts of the Lord which you have shall proclaim to be my holy convocations. These are my feasts. So they are holy gathering times when we are commanded to assemble. We don't do the sacrifices. We know Jesus Christ superseded those. Uh, so we don't perform animal sacrifices on these days but we still have a holy convocation. Verse 3, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation as well. You shall do no work on it. It's the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Verse 4, These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations to proclaim at their appointed times. On the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. So, of course, we kept the Passover here a couple of nights ago the beginning of the 14th day in God's calendar, the 14th day of Nisan. And in verse uh, 6, On the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. To the Lord, seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. We don't do our normal jobs. We don't do our normal chores that that fill our, our days. Are the rest of the week, we are to come to worship Him. Um, so that's why we're here. And uh, finally, he says, on the seventh day shall be a holy convocation as well. Dropping down um, to um, well before before I get to the next one, <clears throat> it's interesting. Just a few days ago, the Pope was uh, talking about Easter and talking about. The, uh, this time of year uh, from his perspective. And he said in an address, the death and resurrection of Christ are the culmination of the entire liturgical year and the Christian life. And that was rather interesting because, yes, the death and resurrection of Christ is crucial absolutely vital we would not be able to go to the next stage if it weren't for his life and death and resurrection it's only the first part isn't it it is not the culmination it is the beginning of the plan and it makes possible a whole list and a whole program of other things that happen and so again how thankful and what a blessing it is that we can be here And keep the Holy Days so we understand what comes next. He talks about the uh, verse uh, 
18, you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. And of course, it says in verse 20, 21, you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. No customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generation. So that, of course, is the Feast of Weeks. And we understand that that is the uh, signifying the, the first fruits, Christ the first of the first fruits, but then the, the Feast of Weeks, that there is an early harvest and, and we can be a part of those first fruits that will be born into his family and his kingdom and, and actually help the whole world to uh, be a part of the plan of salvation. And that, of course, happens in early summer. We read on verse 23. He says, uh, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, memorial of blowing of trumpets. So we understand in the next stage is Christ's return, the resurrection of the saints, the intervention by God in, in man's affairs and bringing his reign on earth and our opportunity to be a part of that, that reign, that righteous and, and holy reign on earth. You know, being the first fruits uh, does not mean that we will be uh, better or more impressive or that we are somehow more special than the rest of the world. God is calling the whole world. Ultimately, he's going to be calling uh, the whole world. And actually, in, uh, in real life, in, in gardening and, and whatnot, some of the first fruits of the crop are smaller than what comes later. And we know, of course, Jesus Christ is the first of the first fruits, and he is the model, the example that we all strive to be. But, you know, brethren, we have nothing to be puffed up about. Sometimes the early strawberries are actually the smaller ones. And the later ones are more tasty and sweeter and bigger. So we're not here because we're better. We are here because God has called us and we have an opportunity. And how could we possibly pass it up? So we will have a chance to help when Christ returns to set up his kingdom. Of course, we read of, of um, the Day of Atonement in verse 26. The tenth day of the seventh month shall be the Day of Atonement when Satan is bound, when he's taken out of the way. Finally, the influence on all of mankind is, is, is judged and is taken out of the way and is bound and is removed from the presence of, of mankind. And that is a tremendous truth. And that's a wonderful promise that is ahead of us, that we can look forward to. And for all mankind, they don't even know it yet, but that's going to be a gift for them that he will be taken out of the way. And finally, in verse 34, we read, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. And, of course, that's signifying the, the millennial reign of Christ. And we will be keeping the feast uh, in about, what, five, uh, six months from now. We've already registered for the feast. We're getting excited for the feast. And that's where we're headed. And that's what God is excited about as well. 
all the world keeping his holy days, his feast days. And ultimately, uh, he says, on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation as well, a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. And, of course, that's the last great day. That's the culmination of the plan. That's the big climax of the plan when, when everybody has an opportunity, without exception, to be a part of God's family, if they choose, if they want it. And what a tremendous understanding that God has given to us and that we can share, not because of how great we are, but just simply because of His mercy and and. Him calling whom He will. That it will be thrilling when, when this finally comes to fruition, the entire plan. And what a thrill it will be for us to be a part of it. Dr. Winnell mentioned at the Passover the other night that just before Christ's death, he was talking to his disciples. But he wasn't just chatting and reminiscing, was he? He was talking about the future. He was telling them what would happen in the future. He was preparing them for the future, to be strong and be courageous, that they would have dark days, but he also was giving them a hope and an excitement about the future as well. The same message that we have been received and that we are encouraged by as well. We read the other night, John chapter 15, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So you will be my disciples. That's a powerful verse and very interesting. How can we make it? How can we really fulfill our calling as Christ's disciples how can we please our father and accomplish his will and fulfill our potential i'd like to talk about that a little bit today let's before we uh go down that path let's uh look over in exodus chapter 12 just again to review a little bit about this day he says the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, <clears throat> what we're doing, what we started to do, that we are eating unleavened bread. We're eating that flat bread. It doesn't have the puffy texture that uh, we like in all the other types of bread that we eat. And we are eating that now. It says in verse uh, chapter 12 and verse 15, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. So we've been preparing for that, and now... We have removed leaven from our houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. On the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them. But that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So this principle shows us that there is, uh, it's not inappropriate to prepare light cooking on the holy day or on the Sabbath. He says, no, no customary work other than that which you shall eat. Verse 
17, so that you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. So we are keeping these days. Uh, We are keeping the feast of unleavened bread. I'd like to talk today about spiritual growth. In light of these days, in light of what we are doing, in light of what we have started doing as of sunset last night, the spiritual growth God wants us to have and is looking for and we can attain in which these days point to, these days of unleavened bread. You know, it's not a mistake that the first feast season Uh, Passover and unleavened bread occurs in the spring. Spring is a time of growth. The Hebrew uh, name of this time, the month of Abib, that was the Hebrew name of the first month, not Nisan. That was a uh, a Babylonian name. But but Abib literally means green ears or green heads of grain. So even the, the name of the month identified it as the time when the Barley was was earing out. It was starting to pop. Everything was uh, turning green. And isn't it isn't it refreshing to go outside now and to go for a walk and to see that spring is popping out and it feels good. You know the the, the temperatures are a little bit warmer and the grass is green and the the blossoms have come and the the leaves are starting to come out. And it's after the winter. Of course, our friends up north would say that we'd never have winter down here, and they're actually right. <clears throat> but uh, but it gets a little cool in the in the in January and in February, and it feels great to be alive in springtime. It feels good, doesn't it, to go outside and to see the the growth. Now, let's stop for a minute, because like everything else that God does, Satan has a counterfeit for it, and this is no different. What is the counterfeit that Satan offers at this time, at the time of the spring holy days? Well, of course, it's Easter. Well, what's wrong with Easter? Doesn't it focus on growth and life as well, the resurrection of Christ? Brought back to life. Bunny rabbits, they reproduce quickly. You know, what's, I mean, how can you not like bunny rabbits? You know, they're so soft and cuddly and, you know, what's wrong with them? What about eggs? I love eggs, you know, eating them every morning. What, how could you possibly find fault with eggs? Couldn't that be a symbol of life too? So many things in life come from eggs. They are God's creation. So what was Easter or Ishtar really, really about? And what's wrong with it? You know, it's astonishing today that the truth about pagan traditions are available at the touch of a button. Years ago when Mr. Armstrong was publishing this material about Christmas and Easter, it was, it was shocking. It was... Uh, it was new. It was different. People weren't hearing these things. Now, you go on Google. You go to the website gotquestions.org.org and you type in origins of Easter and it all comes up. 
everybody knows. And yet, nobody cares. Here's one of the articles that, that came up. And uh, this was a, a gentleman writing, explaining uh, the, uh, the question, should Christians celebrate Easter? He said, here we are, Easter Sunday approaching, and sadly, we're receiving more questions about the Easter bunny than we are about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Among Christians, there is a significant divide in convictions regarding Easter Sunday. Some Christians have the conviction that the Easter bunny and Easter eggs are innocent cultural traditions that can be incorporated into Easter Sunday. Other Christians are vehemently opposed to the Easter bunny and Easter eggs, pointing to horror stories involving pagan rituals and child sacrifices to spring fertility goddesses. Now this is someone defending Easter. And he's saying these things have a history in horror stories of child sacrifice. Understandable why some people are vehemently opposed to Easter traditions. He says, it is entirely true that the Easter bunny and Easter egg traditions have decidedly non-Christian origins. It's pretty much universally accepted that their origins are in spring fertility rituals. Again, this is someone defending Easter. Imagine. He says, why bunnies? Bunnies are very fertile creatures. Why eggs? Eggs symbolize new life about to blossom. Why spring? Winter symbolizes death. Spring symbolizes a fresh start. While there were undeniably some evil practices in some cultures in regard to spring, and of course these practices should, not, should be completely avoided, the core concepts behind celebrating the arrival of spring are not inherently evil. In a sense, spring can even be understood to symbolize the resurrection. Where there was once death, Jesus' death and burial, there is now new life. Jesus' resurrection. A very, very slippery argument, wouldn't you say? Spring's a time of growth. It is a time of growth and the harvesting of first fruits. But God is very clear about us worshiping Him the way He says and not according to tradition, not putting a veneer of human reasoning over old pagan practices. Deuteronomy chapter 12. Let's just go there quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 12, just to reinforce what, what, um, what we are doing today. He says, verse 29, When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you're not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also do, will do likewise. You shall not do that. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. You, know, you notice he didn't say you're just going to worship these false gods. He said, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Don't presume to put my name on it and yet use these other practices. For every abomination to the Lord 
which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they even burned their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. He says we don't, doesn't want us to worship in the ways of the heathen, and that's why we're here today. That's why we are worshiping on the first day of our leavened bread. Because we are obeying God's commandments. We are worshiping Him the way He says to, instead of man's imagination. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 1 through 3. Most of the kids have this as a memory scripture. It says, do not learn the ways of the heathen. Do not learn the ways of the heathen. Their ways are vanity. Mr. Mike Simone has a good commentary on, the, on comparing uh, Passover and Easter uh, on the website. Uh, step by step in a, in a chart form, you can take a look at it. Very, very uh, clear uh, comparison showing the origins of Passover are all scriptural. The origins of Easter are all man's tradition. You know, one of the arguments that this uh, gentleman on the, on the website is saying is that we, we keep, they keep Easter, but we, we don't do the bad stuff that they did back there, like killing their babies. We don't in this culture today. I think as I, the most up-to-date number I could find was from a couple of years ago, and that was 54 million babies had been aborted as of 2012. Is that not child sacrifice? You know, these also these um, uh, practices had to do with illicit and immoral practices. Are we not an immoral people? The Western so-called Christian world. What an example we set. So we don't keep, we in the church of God, we don't keep the pagan religious traditions of the world because God has called us into his truth and his truth is powerful. His truth is real. His truth is what is going to stand for all time. Another article on gotquestions.org says this, Easter Sunday is preceded by the season of Lent, a 40-day period of fasting and repentance culminating in Holy Week and followed by a 50-day Easter season that stretches from Easter to Pentecost. Interesting, another counterfeit. We are told to examine ourselves as we approach Passover, and we are told to count 50 after the, the Sabbath that falls during the Days of Unleavened Bread in order to go to Pentecost. Satan is very clever. He has lots of counterfeits. It says, In the Christian faith, Easter has come to mean the celebration of the resurrection of Christ. Three days after his crucifixion, it is the oldest Christian holiday and the most important day of the church year. Because of the significance of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the events upon which Christianity is based. Because of the commercialization and pagan origins of Easter, many churches prefer to refer to it as Resurrection Sunday instead of 
Easter. The rationale is the more we focus on Christ and the less we focus on the pagan holiday, the better. Amen. No argument there. How about focusing on Christ all the way? Like doing what he said. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Follow in my footsteps. Do the things that I have done. We read those things a couple of nights ago. What a blessing it is that, brethren, you and I don't have to be confused by these contorted arguments and, and struggle with how to explain it to our kids you know, about how, what's the connection with eggs and bunnies and Christ. The truth is plain. And we are keeping these days. So we are eating unleavened bread for seven days starting today. But why? To symbolize getting sin out of our lives. Leaven is a type of sin. But why seven days? Because seven days symbolizes an entire lifetime of living and growing. He's talking about growth. He's talking about spiritual growth. There is a lot of significance in the Days of Unleavened Bread with the connection with when it falls in the, in the springtime. God put this holy day in the spring because there is a connection with the harvest. We read earlier, um, well, we didn't read this part. Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 9 about the wave sheaf. It says in uh, verse 9, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath. The priest shall wave it. The Sabbath being the Sabbath during the, the days of unleavened bread. And so... Tomorrow would be the day that the, the wave sheaf, uh, the, the, the first sheaf would be, would be waved. The first of the first, first fruits presented to God. Who does that represent? It was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the first of the first fruits. John 20 and verse 17, Jesus said to Mary, Do not cling to me or touch me after his resurrection, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. So Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled the sheaf being waved and, and, and being presented to God being the, the first one harvested in the plan of salvation. Tremendous significance to the, in the agricultural cycle, what's happening in the natural world at this time of year. Not based on the imagination of men, but on God's word. So what does this mean for us? Again, as we are thinking about harvest, as we are thinking about a time of growth. And we're thinking about the seven days 
that we are keeping these days. What do they mean? What are we to glean from them? Well, one of the basic concepts is that we are to be growing spiritually. That's why we're here. That's why we are alive to do God's work. That's why we're called and in the process to grow spiritually and prepare for his kingdom, prepare for entrance into his family. Again, John 15, 8, Jesus said, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Brethren, are we growing? Let's talk about that a little bit more specifically. How do we grow as a Christian? What do these days mean for us in that way? Again, not spring fertility rites with all kinds of crazy made-up stuff, but, but growth relating to the harvest, relating to what we're seeing in God's creation out there right now, the growth coming up. What does it mean for us? <clears throat> there are some lessons I think that we can pull from it as we are here observing these days. Number one, spiritual growth takes patience. Spiritual growth takes patience. The seasons teach us that there's a time for everything. We are in the season of of spring. Everything's popping out. People are getting into their gardens. Uh, You may uh, be doing so. And um, I have some fruit trees, and it's exciting to see them The buds come, and then the blossoms open, and uh, it's neat to see because you know that another another season is coming. But there there are seasons for planting, seasons for plowing, seasons for growing, seasons for harvesting, and seasons take time. We take time to grow, don't we? We all take time to grow. James chapter 5 and verse 7. James chapter 5 and verse 7. We read about this and we think about the, the road that we're on. We think about the path we're on. What we're striving to do. Responding to God and His, His Spirit. James chapter 5 and verse 7. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. There's a cycle. And you don't pull out the carrots before they're mature, right? As a kid... If your parents grow carrots, you know, everybody's done this, I think. As the, when the tops start growing, you think, wow, are they ready? So you pull them out. Oops, they're not ready yet. You can't stick them back in. You have to wait. And God is helping us to grow. But it takes time. That's why he's giving us time. We sometimes get frustrated with ourselves because we're, we're struggling with the same things. It takes 
time. God knows that. He wants to see growth. He wants to see progress. But he, does, he knows it doesn't happen overnight. Just like when, with some of you, if you planted some things in your garden already, you're not expecting to harvest it the next day, right? You will be sadly disappointed. It takes time. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. So now he, he's, you know, he's comparing these things with, with, with real life situations that we face. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You've heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. God wants to bring us to the end result, and that is in his family. That's where it's going. That's the goal. And he'll do anything in his power to get us there. If we sincerely want it, and if we submit to his his ways, let's turn over to Exodus chapter two. Exodus chapter two. Moses was in Egypt for what about forty years, and at some point he, knowing who he was, an Israelite came to the point where he perceived it's his job to deliver his people. And notice what he did, verse uh, chapter 2, Exodus 2 and verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? And then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses, but he fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well And 40 long years went by before God called him and brought him back to accomplish something that he might have had an inkling that he he was going to try to do on his own at first. After all, I'm an Israelite. I'm a a general. I'm I'm powerful. I'm politically, you know, uh, have position. But God called him 40 years later. Do you ever think that Moses at some point out in the wilderness, when he was sitting by the flocks and he was, you know, heard the bleeding of the lambs and time started to move very, very slowly in that environment? as opposed to the social life that he was a part of in, in Egypt. And, you know, he was a mover and shaker, and he was in all the, all the big events. You ever wonder, he wondered himself, what am I doing out here? Why am I here? 
And why is it taking so long? Whatever I'm supposed to be doing. (laughs) Why is it taking 40 years? But God was teaching him something. He was learning patience. We all learn patience one way or the other. In one situation or another, we have to look at the long term. We have to look at the horizon. We have to keep our eyes on the the, the goal. It's very hard to do. But look at what God is preparing for us. Entrance into His kingdom. Being born into His family. Being having an existence on His level. Not to His stature, but being children of His. And brethren, sometimes we need patience, don't we? Because it doesn't come right away. Notice that when we're baptized, we are not immediately put into the kingdom. Luke chapter 8. Notice. These days of unleavened bread remind us that it's a process, that there are seven days. It's not just one. It's a cycle. It's a process. It's a program that we're under. And we need patience. Luke chapter 8 and verse 4, he says, uh, Then a great multitude had gathered, and they came together to him from every city. He spoke a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed. A, a, a lot of illustrations of parables were surrounding uh, the agricultural world, weren't they? As he sowed, some fell by the wayside. It was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock. As soon as it sprang up, it withered away. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it, but others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. And then he told his disciples, You have been given to understand something the world does not know. And here is what it is. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with Patience. Patience. Christ said, in your patience possess you your souls. Brethren, are we growing in patience with one another, with each other in the church, with with our mate, with our husband or wife, with our children, with our parents? Children, you need to grow in patience with your parents. They are not done yet. God is not finished with them yet. We all need to grow. Now, patience is not necessarily something we like to ask for from God because He will test that. But He he wants us to grow in patience. God is giving us time. He's giving us an opportunity, a season of spiritual growth. 
and growth takes patience, just like when we work out in the field or work in the garden. And that's one of the things that we think about in the next seven days. Think about how patient are we? How, how much have we learned patience over the last year? How much do we need to continue learning? Another aspect of spiritual growth. <clears throat> spiritual growth takes overcoming. Spiritual growth takes overcoming. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 29. Spiritual growth takes Overcoming. When Moses came with Aaron back to Egypt and told the elders of Israel about the plan and about deliverance and that God had intervened and everything was going to change and everything was going to be better, they were overjoyed. Notice Exodus chapter 4 and verse uh, 30. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and they had looked on their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. They were leaving Egypt finally after generations of being there. And after the hardship and after the oppression... But you know the story. Pharaoh did not get the memo. Everybody knew but Pharaoh. And so then they went to Pharaoh and he said, uh, and, and, and Moses and Aaron told him, chapter 5, verse 1, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Go. And you know what happened. He said, okay, you all are idle. You will have the same quota of bricks, but no straw. Or actually, even did they uh, in- increase the quota. But no straw. Fulfill your work in verse 13, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also, verse 14, the officers of the uh Children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? Would you say that, that things got darker before they got lighter? Does that ever happen to us? As God is delivering us, Sometimes do we, do we go through challenges? In verse, verse 20, Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron, who stood there to meet them. And they, they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought... Trouble on this people. Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Then the Lord, chapter 6, verse 1, said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. God had a plan. 
God had it figured out. He knew what he was going to do. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name Yahweh I was not known to them. And what he's meaning is he, not necessarily they didn't know that name because you can look back in Genesis and find it. But I did not reveal myself by these powers, by these wonders. The things that I'm going to do in this generation, he said, I did not show myself before that way. But if you were one of the Israelites, this would, this would be discouraging. Things got worse, not better. Sometimes when, when we are baptized, when, when you, know, you think, well, I'm baptized now. Everything is going to get better. It's going to be smooth sailing. Uh, I have God's Spirit. It's going to be wonderful. And what happens? Oftentimes, very, very difficult trials happen around that time. God wants to know what's in our heart. Deuteronomy chapter 8 talks about that. <clears throat> Let's go over there. Deuteronomy chapter 8. He tests us. He tries us. He is giving us challenges because He knows what He wants us to, to do and where He wants us to go. Moses, at the end of this generation, 40 years later, when he was about to enter the land with the new generation. He said in chapter 8 and verse 1, Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor your, did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Some of us were talking last night that, you know, for some of us men, we wouldn't care if we didn't have a different change of clothing for 40 years. <clears throat> I think the ladies might be more of a problem. But God was showing them, was leading them along a path, and He allowed challenges to help them grow. God is doing something very, very special with us, brethren. And as we are going through these, have you ever watched the a time lapse of a plant coming up out of the ground and growing. It's fascinating. You know, a seed is put in the ground, and at first you can't see anything at the level of dirt. And as you watch this time lapse, suddenly there, there's a, a, a burst through the dirt of this plant as it pushes its way through the dirt and begins to grow. It's a struggle. Our life is a struggle. 
And we must overcome. We're here to overcome. Revelation 12 talks about how we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. So God sees the potential in every one of us and every human being that he ultimately will have give a chance to, to repent and to come out of sin and acknowledge sin and grow spiritually. If we keep our eyes on that picture, we will be able to grow spiritually. Number three, spiritual growth also takes change. Spiritual growth takes change. The days of unleavened bread tell us we are not okay the way we are. We need to change. Oh, but I'm this way. I'm just that way. Really? What does God say? Is that what we're going to tell God someday? We have to change. The seven-day period represents our entire life. There's a progression. There's a program. We have to get sin out of our life. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6. First Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6, he says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Why is leaven a symbol of sin? Because it starts small and it spreads. And it infects the whole lump. And that's why God says we have to get it out. We have to change. We have to root out sin in our life. We have to be a new lump. Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Since you truly are unleavened, he said to the Corinthian church, you, you are unleavened physically, but just eating unleavened bread does not magically create spiritual change. It's not just the bread. The bread is a reflection of something that, that God is doing something inside. He said, let the spiritual reflect the physical. For indeed, Christ, our, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, but with the leaven of malice, not, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So God wants us to change. Why? <clears throat> because He hates us? No, because He loves us. Because he's bringing us to a state where we can be born into his family. I remember reading and hearing of the messages. Mr. Armstrong, even in his 80s and 90s, would talk about how he was still struggling with pride. Even in his 80s and 90s, he was still having to fight with his own human nature. And you know, that, that's encouraging to see the, a man who's, who's 88 or 90 or 92, and he's still fighting. It means that there's nothing wrong with me if I'm having to fight. Dr. Meredith has said the same thing. You know, it's encouraging to know we're all human. We all still sin, but we just have to keep going and we have to change. We can't justify it. We have to change. Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> Notice. 
Hebrews chapter 12, all have sinned, all fall short. Even if we are baptized, we, we fall short, we make mistakes. We have to repent, go back to God, ask for forgiveness. But notice he says in Hebrews 12 verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What gave Jesus Christ the ability to endure this absolutely horrible trial? It was the focus on the future. It was the focus on the end result. That if he would go through this, that all of mankind would, would have the opportunity to be in God's family. For the joy that was set before him, he, he kept that in the front of his mind. And it, it gave him encouragement. He says, verse 3, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And we can, we can get weary. We can get discouraged. We can get down. We have to stay focused on the future. Notice in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. God will give us every opportunity, but we have to change, don't we? And in the next seven days as we are eating of that unleavened bread, we need to be thinking that, that this reflects and there should be change. Am I becoming something different? Or am I just going through the cycle every year? What's the purpose? First John 3 and verse 1, Beloved, or behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. That's an incredible statement, isn't it? To see the God that we have served all of these years, however long we've been alive, however long we have been living this way of life and walking this way of life, to actually see Him face to face. We know Him. We talk to Him. We walk with Him. We haven't seen Him. And we will finally see Him face to face. And why is that important? Verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. If there's a reason why we're going along this walk to make it into God's kingdom, we purify ourselves. We change. 
We're willing to grow. We're willing to do things differently. Young people, even though you're not baptized yet, you can start thinking this way. You can start asking God to help you develop good habits, help you to break bad habits, help you to change, help you to be guided by, by his, his walking with you. So we are striving to grow you know, spiritually, and that means change. Real change. That leads us to the final point, and spiritual growth takes a new life. It takes a new life. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Who are, how are we to grow, and, and where does it come from? It's not on our own steam. It's not by our own power. We're going to be discouraged. We're going to be uh, let down when we, when we do that. It has to be by the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery... The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, verse 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We can't, we can't really grasp how good the promise is, he's saying. We only see through a glass darkly. But if we are willing to grow, if we are willing to take this season of, of life and season of time, the results are astounding. But God has revealed them to us through His Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? He says, verse 14, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So that's, that's the goal, isn't it? That every day we are striving to let Christ live his life in us. And as we take that unleavened bread, what are we enacting? What are we reflecting? That every day we are asking him to take control of our lives. To take direction. To take the direction of our lives. God is reproducing himself. God is allowing us to be a part of his plan. And what an opportunity it is to actually have his mind reproduced in us through his Holy Spirit. To think like God. To understand the things of God. To understand spiritual things because we just read you cannot understand them if you don't have the, the Spirit of God. These things mean nothing to, to, to those who have not yet been had their minds opened. What a privilege, what a precious 
opportunity. Brethren, as we are here, as we are observing these days, it's not just another holy day. It's not just another cycle. It's where we are going and where God is bringing us to. We have the mind of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 21. Notice Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 21. Have we put to death the old man or the old woman? No offense. Have we put to death that former person at baptism who went down in the watery grave and every now and then they try to get up they try to exert their, their will, and we have to push them back down again. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 21. If indeed, he says, you have, been, you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's the only way we can grow. That's the only way we can make it to finish our race is if we are renewed in the spirit of our mind. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, he says, put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. <clears throat> he talks about all the things that we, we can think about as we grow. We can't do it by ourselves, though. We have to be renewed by the Spirit. And that's what is happening as we ask Christ to live His life in us. Let's turn over to Colossians Chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. Where, where are our thoughts? What is the focus of our life? Is it just on, you know, taking care of the things we need to do every day? Is it just on making a living? Is it just on getting food on the table? Where is our mind? These holy days give us time to think and, and pause and, and analyze and stop and reevaluate. He says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We observed the Passover a few days ago. We are dead to ourselves. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. We have nothing. We are nothing without God. We can do nothing without God. But when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. So he, he says, you know, there, there's, a, there's a reflection of our life when we set our minds on things above. Are we growing? Are we preparing for that time when we will finally be harvested? And we will enter God's family. And what an incredible family reunion that will be. When we all will be in God's family, our life is hidden in Him, and He will raise us up that day, He says. But when we are, are, are raised and the race will have been run, we will have finished our course, I think there will be a... A lot of tears of joy, don't you? As we look at each other, we know the struggles and the difficulties and the trials and the, the, the difficult things that we went through. And yet we made it. We made it. And we'll know that we all persevered and we'll know that only Christ living in us was what made it possible. And of course, we won't just sit around reminiscing for all eternity. We will then get to work. Helping others as well. The next crop, it's all about growth. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. So what are we doing in our garden? Are we tending our garden, brethren? Or are we letting weeds come up? You know how quickly and easily the weeds take over if you have a garden. How is our growth? That's why we're here, to grow spiritually. To respond, to please God, to glorify God. He says, this is how you do it, by growing. This is how you please the Father. Galatians chapter 5 and verse, verse um, 13. He says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. We might say what you have been called. You, you have liberty to do something. You have an opportunity in front of you, he says. And you know, God's way is not restricted. It is not constricted. It, it's very broad, isn't it? God's commandments. We have a lot of liberty on, on our personal choices that we make in this life, in this way of life. But he says, you've been called to liberty. Use it not as an opportunity to the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. He says, let God's Spirit lead us. Let it make guide our decisions. Not just having the Spirit, but being led by it. You know, the church is, we read, is under judgment now. Now is our time to be judged. 
What are we doing with our time? It's not enough to have the Spirit. We must walk in the Spirit and produce fruits of the Spirit. In California, some years ago, we had an orange tree, the thorniest, gnarled, stubbiest, ugliest tree you've ever seen. Not one that would you would even want to hold up as a tree. You know, you wouldn't want to take a picture of it. It looked kind of sad out there in the yard. Um, barely looked like a tree. But when the time of fruit would come, it produced the biggest, juiciest, sweetest oranges you could absolutely imagine. I mean, they were as big as grapefruits. It was an amazing tree. It was a bit of a struggle to prune the tree with all the thorns. You know, it got sort of poked a lot as you were pruning it. But the fruit was outstanding. And every winter as it would grow, and you see it ripening, it was exciting to look forward to the fruit coming. And you could just imagine after a few years had gone by and and just imagining the fruit, how good it was going to taste. I think that's the way God looks at us. We are the weak of the world. We're not the impressive of the world. But he's thrilled to see the leaves come up. And he's thrilled to see the blossoms come up. And he's thrilled when the the, the fruit comes out. And it's good and it tastes good and it's sweet. And he says, it's like this, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love and and joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The good fruits. We are not the most impressive trees in the orchard. That's what he says. And yet, if we are yielding good fruit, we are getting ready for the harvest. You know, I have another plum tree in our yard today that uh, looks really good. looks beautiful spread of limbs and leaves. And I cannot get it to set fruit. And I've sort of been struggling with it. I, I you know, it, it will a couple of plums will show up and and uh, they'll grow to about a marble size and then they'll fall off. This year, I think there are four actually, so we're making progress <clears throat> instead of just two. But the point is, God is looking for fruit, and that's the goal. He says, if we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Let's yield the fruits that He wants. Let's grow. Let's become what He wants us to be. Thankfully, God is the master gardener, the master husbandman. He knows exactly what to do to cultivate and to encourage the growth that He's looking for. Let's turn in conclusion to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We started here. And we're going to end here. Jesus Christ said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
And every branch that bears, bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And as Dr. Winnell said the other night, it's, it's, it's painful. This life is painful. Challenges are painful and, and, and trials. But pruning is good for us. It gets rid of diseased limbs. It, it, it helps to spur and stimulate growth. It helps us to become more healthy in the long run. It's good for us. He says, verse 3, You are already clean because of the word which I spoke to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit for without me you can do nothing. Unless we're connected to the vine, we cannot bear fruit. Unless Jesus Christ is living in us every day and we are yielding to him every day, we don't have the growth that we need. He says, verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Brethren, these are the days of unleavened bread that we have started. Not a made-up festival about fertility rites and nonsense and bunnies and eggs. Pagan rituals that teach us nothing. No, these are the days of unleavened bread. The, The springtime corresponds to a season of the greening of the ears of barley, Christ being the first fruits. And it's his will that we would use this time to think about our life. Think about the season that we're in. Think about the season of growth that he has given to us in his mercy and in his generosity. Let's let him stimulate spiritual growth in us. It takes patience, but God has patience, and he will help us to have patience. It takes overcoming, but we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. It takes changing, but God will show us how to change, and he will lead and guide us through Christ living in us most of all. So now that springtime has come, when you... Take a walk outside and listen to the birds and see everything popping out. Think about the growth that God is seeking in us. Think about the spiritual growth that will be there for all eternity.